Yeah, give the Lord a hand this morning. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 3. For those of you that have been journeying with us as we've been exegeting and expositorily preaching through the book of Romans, we come to what is the meatiest centerpiece of this whole book, where Paul really begins, under the inspiration of God, to flesh out the depths and the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And so we're going to read this text today in Romans chapter 3. We're going to be reading it uh, verses 24 to 26. But we're going to probably be in this passage for at least four or five weeks, just unpacking this. My goal today is to help you to understand, within the context of this passage, what the word propitiation means. I have kids, and I'm sure many of you who have kids have also had that experience of watching your children watch Dora the Explorer. And in Dora the Explorer, Dora always, whenever she introduces a big word, she says, can you say whatever the word is? And so I feel this morning, like as I begin to introduce this word, we should do a little Dora the Explorer here. I'm going to say propitiation. Propitiation. Can you say propitiation? Propitiation. That's great. That's great. You did beautiful. And if you didn't get it quite right, that's all right. We'll be saying this word a lot over the coming weeks. But let's just read the text, and, and then as is our custom, we'll ask God to help us with his Holy Spirit, and then we'll, we'll get to work. We're going to pick it up in verse 24, chapter 3, verse 24. Uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 23. My bad. Go back a verse, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace as a gift Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, after all of the academic debates over the meaning of this Greek word halasmas and over all the different discussion that has happened over the last century, about what it means to have your son's blood either propitiate or to expiate, after all of this debate, having come to a technical understanding of what your word is saying to us here in this word, Father in heaven, my fear is that we still live with a wrong understanding. We may be able to correctly identify the meaning of this word, but functionally we still live as though it means something else. Father, and I pray that your spirit would just illuminate this text before us this morning in such a way that your people who are called by your name would walk away understanding the glory of the cross. Help us to see it this morning. Help me in my 
best attempt, Lord, to explain this word. I pray, God, that you would draw your people closer to your heart through what you say to us this morning. We ask that you do this by the propitiating blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In retrospect, it seemed to be a grave miscarriage of justice. It seems to be an injustice that betrayed the notion of the glory of God. King David has murdered one of his most faithful lieutenants, one of his top warriors, and stolen his wife. It was so vicious. It was so wrong. It was done in secrecy. Nathan the prophet comes to him and begins with a story. There was a man who was very wealthy and had all kinds of lambs and all kinds of flocks, and yet he took his neighbor's little baby ewe lamb, the only one that he had that was precious in his eyes, and he slaughtered it in order to provide a meal for some of his own guests. And David's anger burned in righteous indignation. He said, who is this man that has done this thing? He deserves to die because he showed no pity. And Nathan says, behold, you're that man. And then begins this long list of punishments that David deserves from the hand of God. But you see, even with all of that, it doesn't quite add up. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, at one point in the Old Testament is described as fighting his way across an entire field of Philistines with just his sword because David said, I thirst. And there was no water to drink except there was a spring, a brook of bubbling water on the far side of this field, behind, deep behind enemy lines. And Uriah, out of a love for David, took his own life in his hand and fought his way across this entire field in order to bring back a cup of water to David. Such was the love that Uriah had for his king. David takes Uriah's wife, commits adultery with her. He tries to cover it up through a series of attempts to convince Uriah to try to seduce Uriah to sleeping with his wife, his own wife. It all fails. And so he sends Uriah forth into battle and he orders that he be struck down at the hand of the Ammonites in fierce conflict, that Uriah's life would be forfeit so that David's adultery with Bathsheba would be covered. This man who willingly put his life on the line for his friend David. And so God's litany of punishments, though severe, just don't quite seem to add up. They don't quite seem to fully achieve justice. And so Nathan says to David, after David says, I have sinned. Nathan says, God has put this sin 
away. And you and I, reading this story, if we have no understanding of the cross, if we cannot anticipate the coming glory of Jesus, we hear that and we must surely say, what? This is the king. This is the one responsible for doing justice. This is the one responsible for upholding the law. And when the king fails, he should still be subject to the true lawgiver, the Almighty himself. And here he is, God Almighty, saying to David, After all of these punishments, I put away your sin, and you will not die. Can you imagine Uriah's brothers or his cousins or his family members hearing that verdict and thinking to themselves, What? Uriah was killed, his life was taken. And you're going to let David off? Surely this is horrific, what is about to come to pass, but it's not enough. And all the world steps back and says, there's a problem here. God either is not good, as good as he portrays himself to be. He is sort of a... a, overindulgent father who turns a blind eye to the egregious failings of his own children. He's not as good and holy and righteous as he claims to be. Or maybe we have to say God is not as powerful as he at times has appeared to demonstrate himself to be. He can't apparently stop sin or rectify it. In all of this, God says to David, knowing that it will create problems for his reputation for a millennia, knowing that he will endure with the blasphemy and the slander of untold thousands across the centuries and even to this day, nevertheless, bearing with that, God says to David, I have put away your sin." The primary issue is, how do you do that, God, and still be glorious, still be righteous, still be God? And Paul is going to give us the answer to that question today. It starts off with a really big word. This word is propitiation. And my fear for us this morning is that we understand the basics of the cross, but we have been distracted by the basics of the cross that are taking our focus away from what is at the heart of who Jesus is. We may arrive today at a correct understanding of propitiation and yet functionally live our lives with a wrong understanding of what this word means. And so as we begin to unpack it this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to ask yourself this question. When you look at the cross, and as we begin to unpack what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, when you look at the cross, do you see the cross as primarily being about you and your sin, or do you see the cross as primarily being about the glory of God in vindicating his name and upholding his righteousness. Which way do you see the cross? Look with me, Romans chapter 3, we pick it up in verse 24. 
3, Paul makes this statement. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Notice that. Underline that. That is the word that sets the context. Whatever we're going to make of the definition of this word propitiation, we have to understand that Paul uses this word propitiation within the context of a loss of glory. What is the most important problem then that Paul is seeking to address in this passage when he mentions propitiation? The most important problem that I am picking up on here is that God seems to be unjust. In verse 23, he says, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory. Then we have this really meaty passage where words like ransom and propitiation, all these types of ideas are presented, but we land then in verse 26. Paul says at the conclusion, the start of it is, we've all fallen short of God's glory, And at the conclusion, Paul says, this was all done, whatever's being done here in this passage, this was all done to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Indeed, verse 26 says that God would have appeared or would have seemed in some way to be unrighteous or unjust in justifying sinners if God had not put Christ forward as the propitiation by his blood. You'll notice that there is in this text a purpose clause there. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just, so that he might be just. This is in order that. God is putting Jesus forward to accomplish a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is that he would be just, that he would be righteous. This is what he is getting at. So one of the things that I want you to understand as we're working our way through this is that before the cross has anything to do with you or me, it first has everything to do with God. Before the cross ever has anything to say to you and me about our sins, it must first have to do with the glory of the Father. There is a problem. When we see this, we see that the basic issue, that God's righteousness is at stake because his name or his reputation, in some sense, has become tarnished. And in putting God forward, what God, in putting Jesus forward, what God is doing is he's seeking to vindicate his reputation. He's seeking to uphold his name. He's seeking to uphold his honor and the glory of who he is. What creates this problem? Why did God face this problem of needing to give this public vindication of his righteousness? The answer is found in verse 25, the last phrase in verse 25. Paul explains it. He says, in his divine forbearance, God passed over the sins previously committed. Now, it says in the last verse that God would be just, and it says here in verse 25, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over sins. When we take these two phrases together, what does that mean? It means that in some sense, to to look at the opposite, to look at the corollary here, that God would not be just in his divine forbearance when he passed over the sins previously committed, 
unless there was a plan somehow to uphold his glory. They mean that now and for centuries, God has been doing what the psalmist says in Psalm 103 and verse 10, where he says, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. In other words, God has been passing over uncounted countless thousands upon thousands of sins, and he's been doing it for centuries. He has been forgiving them. He's been letting them go. He has not been punishing them as they truly deserve. And this has created this perception within the world that perhaps God just doesn't take sin seriously. Now, why is that a problem? Why does that matter? Is it even felt as a problem by those who do not believe in God? How many of you, uh, when you walk out to, to take your garbage buggy out to the curb in the morning, uh, encounter your neighbor there at the end of his driveway, and, and your neighbor has said to you, man, I just had a hard time sleeping last night because, uh, you know, like God's honor seems to be at stake in the fact that he doesn't just strike me dead for all my sins that I've committed. Have you ever heard a neighbor say that to you? How many of you struggle with that? God should have struck David dead instantly, but he didn't. But in not doing so, God now has to justify why he has allowed David to go on. The problem is, if God is holy and righteous, and if we are as sinful as the scriptures tell us that we are, shouldn't God just strike us down instantly? Indeed, his character, his holiness, and the demands of justice would imply that he should. And yet, He hasn't. I don't think this is a problem that the lost, unbelieving world struggles with. I know it's not. I mean, how many really wrestle with this apparent injustice that God is lenient with sinners? Indeed, how many Christians wrestle with the fact that our own forgiveness is, in some sense, a threat to the correct perception of God's righteousness? I don't think we wrestle with that either. The secular mindset doesn't even assess the situation the way that the Bible, biblical mindset does. And why is that? It's because the secular mindset thinks from a radically different starting point. When the secular mindset starts to think about the problems in the world, we start from our own rights, from what is important to us. I have heard the argument many times, if God were good, then he wouldn't allow evil things to happen. Now, the logical flow of that argument is, okay, so God should just strike you dead instantly, right? No, that is not what's happening. The point at which people start with this argument is, I have suffered some indignity. I have borne with some wickedness. I have been hurt in some way. I have been wronged. Therefore, God is not Good, or God is not all powerful, or God doesn't just, He flat out just does not exist because this was allowed to happen to me. But you also have sinned. So if you were to really hold God to that standard of holiness, then He should have also struck you down immediately, and to hear the way you're framing the argument, not 
after you had done your bad deed, but on the precipice of you about to committing that bad deed. This is not how the secular mindset wrestles with these issues. The reality is, is that when it comes to God as creator, he is entitled to certain rights. And his rights as our creator are the ones that have been violated. And this is where we need to begin wrestling with the issue of God's righteousness and his holiness. This is where the cross begins to take a clearer focus as we look upon it. I mean, when David is confronted by Nathan, Nathan says to David, you have despised the word of the Lord and you have done what is evil in his sight. Now, we could imagine David sitting there in his palace, saving up money and treasure in order to one day build the temple, to build a house for the Lord. We could think of David sitting there and perhaps reflecting upon the promises that God had given to David that he would never lack for a man to sit on the throne. And then Nathan comes and he says, you have despised God. And you can just imagine David saying in response to that, what are you talking about? I'm a good Christian. I'm saving up money to build a, a new church building for the Lord. I, I go to church. I worship. He's thinking about himself, and he's not thinking about who God is. Indeed, it is the glory of God, precisely the beauty and the majesty of who God is, that David has fundamentally ignored. He's not even thinking about that. David could say, what do you mean I despise God? I didn't despise you. I wasn't even thinking about you when I committed adultery with Bathsheba. And God would have said in response to that, the creator of the universe, the designer of marriage, the fountain of life, the one, in fact, who holds your very being together in his hands, the one who made you king, the one, I, the Lord, yeah, I wasn't even in the picture when you decided to do this thing. That's right, David, and that's exactly what I mean when I say, you despised me. All sin, church, is a despising of God before it is a damage to the heart and the soul of man. All sin is an affront to God's glory first and foremost before it is ever destructive to each other and to ourselves. David demeaned God's glory. He belittled God's worth. He dishonored God's name. That is the meaning of sin, failing to love God's glory above everything else. When taking Bathsheba, David was saying Bathsheba is worth more and has greater value than the glory of God. That's exactly what he was doing, though he did not even have God on his mind. But to say, I wasn't even thinking about God, that is not an excuse. That is precisely the problem. None of us hold God's glory first and foremost before our eyes. Therefore, the problem then, when God passes over sin and does not immediately, for example, in the case of David, strike him dead with judgment is that it seems that God is sort of agreeing with those individuals who despise his name 
and belittle his glory. He seems to be saying, he appears to be saying that it is a matter of indifference that his glory is spurned. And he seems, in a sense, to be condoning that belittling of his glory and that low assessment of his worth and his value. That's what's happening in the passing over of sin. God is passing over, upholding the value and the beauty of his own glory. Paul makes this statement here. If you go back and you look at it, it says in verse 25, God puts Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was, so the whole reason this was done was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over sins. Now, if the cross is first about you and me, what you would expect Paul to say is, God puts Jesus forward so that he can cover over our sins. But that's not the number one reason that Jesus is put forward. That's not the number one reason why the cross is put forward. The cross is put forward so that God would be glorified, that his name would be upheld as beautiful, as magnificent, and that there would be an understanding of why for centuries and millennia he's been passing over sins. He was not condoning the sin. He was not agreeing with sinners that his name and his beauty and his worth was okay to be spurned and belittled. He had a greater purpose and a greater plan, and we understand it now that Jesus is being brought forward. That's what God is doing. According to this passage in Romans, the most basic problem that God solved by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins was not immediately, first and foremost, the covering over of our sins. It was upholding the glory of God. We know that because of what he says at the very start of this passage, which is where I started this whole thing. It says in verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God could have simply settled accounts and upheld his glory by immediately punishing us the moment we sinned and sending us straight to hell. That would have demonstrated, of course, that he does not minimize our falling short of his glory It would have shown immediately that he does not condone our belittling of his honor. But, as it says in John 3.17, it was not God's delight to destroy. For Jesus says in John 3.17 that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Through him through God. The cross is first and foremost about the glory of God before it is ever anything to do with you and with me. Now, why is this such a big deal? It is a big deal because if the cross is ultimately about you and me and covering over our sins, then what's to say that God doesn't take the cross away? 
What's to say that God doesn't, in time, looking upon the wickedness of humanity, decide ultimately that he is going to just undo the cross, be done with it, and leave us all dangling in the wind, facing nothing but an eternity in hell? If you and I are at the center of this, then there's nothing to say that God cannot change the game on us. But it is because God is at the center of this that God could never possibly change the name of the game without compromising his own glory. Jesus comes to uphold God's glory, and because the cross is ultimately about God's glory, we know that God cannot undo the cross without compromising his glory, which is why this is such good news for you and me. Because the cross is ultimately about the exaltation and the magnification of Christ, the magnification of God in his glory, we can be confident that in holding on to Jesus, we have a firm foundation that is rooted in who God is, not in an arrangement that he is making with his creation. The reason I pose this as a major point of consideration is because when you look at the rest of the world, the scriptures make it clear, when we look out at all the rest of creation, that there's a day coming in which this world will be burned up with fire and a whole new world will be established. That could just as easily be you and me, guys. But because you and I are created in the image of God, to bear his glory to all of creation. God is dealing with us differently on the basis of how we were initially created to reflect his glory, something that was never said to be the case of all the rest of the world. Time and again, our salvation hinges upon God's commitment to his own glory. Now, this brings us to an interesting dilemma that has plagued the church for the last hundred years or so. We now come to this question of what this word propitiation means. Paul makes this statement. Look with me. He says in verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation. This Greek word is halosmos. Now, the reason why I take you back to the Greek word halosmos is because there is a lot of debate over how best to translate this word, halosmos. Do we translate it as propitiation? And if we are, then it's important for you and I to know today what does that word mean? Or we could potentially translate it a slightly different way as expiation. Now, you're all sitting here this morning, and this is the moment where you're like, okay, your eyes are starting to glaze over. You're like, I don't know, like expiation, propitiation. It sounds like the same thing. I don't, they have the same ending. Like what's the, what's the real difference between these words? Well, you could flip to Webster's. And in fact, I'll give you the Webster's dictionary definition. But before I do, I just want to caution you. We don't understand scripture based on Webster's dictionary. Okay, that, that's, not, that's not like the best commentary to use when it comes to unpacking God's word. Now, language is always sort of changing and evolving over time. Uh, my, my kids are text messaging, and I don't even know half the time what they're saying. It's just a string of letters, uh, T-T-Y-L, B-I-B-R-B, you know, 
T-M-O-L-Y-X. I don't even know. I'm like, what does all of that mean? And then they start listing off all this stuff. Tell me what you honestly think. I'll talk to you later. Be right back. And it's just like, oh, like, so, and, and then I'm walking down the hall and they are like saying to each other, tell me what you honestly think. T-M- I can't even remember the acronym now. They're like, oh, T-M-W-A, you know, H-L. And you're like, what? Like, we're a classical school. We believe in classical languages. This is whatever else you're going to say about this. This is not classical. But all I have to say that, uh, that, that language is constantly shifting. Webster's dictionary, therefore, is constantly changing. But the word of God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which is to say that as we approach Scripture, yeah, okay, we've got translations, and, and we're bringing Greek into English, so we need to understand the English words, but ultimately we need to understand the meaning of these words in their own context. So, with that said, let's look at the meaning of the word expiate and the meaning of the word propitiate. Expiation is the act of expiating. Everybody clear now? We know what the word means? The dictionary goes on. Thank God. The act of extinguishing the guilt that has been incurred by someone for doing something. So the act of expiation is extinguishing guilt. You say, that sounds good. I mean, look at what the Bible is saying here. Whom God puts forward as a propitiation by his blood. Yeah, over the years, I've heard that the cross takes away our guilt. That, that's a good word. Let's use that word. Let's use expiation in order to define, to translate this Greek word, halosmos. And we'll understand that what God is doing here in Romans 3 is he's extinguishing our guilt. But now let me tell you what other scholars are suggesting is an alternative word for this Greek word, halosmos. The word propitiate, which again, according to Webster's, is the act of propitiating, which it further defines as the act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone. This is a crucial issue that has to be grounded in the glory of God. The passage says all have sinned and they have fallen short of the glory of God. In the larger picture of the book of Romans, we went through Romans chapter 1 and over and over and over again, we saw this phrase, they, what, exchanged the glory of God for something else. So there's this idea all the way from chapter 1 through chapter 2, here now to chapter 3, where the primary issue over and over and over again is that there is this glory of God which we're to be after, which we're to be looking for and pursuing and delighting and worshiping and praising. It should be that thing which consumes us and captures our attention and just drives us in our imagination and all of our decisions and all of our actions. And we've traded that away. We've traded God's glory for anything else. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, we see that it has to do with sexuality, gender identity. We've traded away the glory of God and pursued unnatural relationships. 
In Romans chapter 1, he talks about trading the glory of God and pursuing birds and creeping things and things that crawl on the ground. We've made idols out of these things. But ultimately, over and over and over again, we have all exchanged the glory of God by denying his existence, which is why Paul starts off in verse 18 and says, what can be known about God is obvious. We have taken this glory and we've suppressed it through unrighteousness. So if the issue is that God sends his son to cover over our sins, and if the issue is, all, if all we're talking about here is trying to do away with our guilt, then the question we have to ask ourselves is, does Jesus restore glory to God? Is Jesus glorious in himself? Is the cross beautiful in its own sake? If we look at the cross and we say to ourselves, the only reason that God sent his son to die on the cross was to cover over my sins, who is at the center of that equation? You and me. If that were true, then perhaps we would agree that maybe the word expiate is the correct definition. But what we're seeing here is that the problem was that the world sees God passing over sins. And it's become a problem. Maybe the average secular person doesn't think of it this way, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is writing about it this way it becomes a problem for God in that he now wants to show that there was something more glorious happening by delaying the judgment for our sins. This is why it says this was to show at the present time that he was just, that he was righteous. The sending forth of God's Son was for the glory of the Father. God's glory is uppermost. It is the most important thing to him. It is the most important thing that he thinks about. It is the most important thing that moves his heart. It is what drives his emotions and his affections. In everything that God does, his purpose is to preserve and to display that glory. To say that his own glory is foremost uh, in his own affections means that he puts a greater value on it than he puts on anything else. He delights in his glory above all things. Now, what does this word glory mean then? Like, how do we define it? It's kind of hard to define because, in a sense, you could say glory is like beauty. How do you define beautiful? You know, you could say beautiful is that which is pleasing to the eye, but we all have slightly different standards of beautiful. And when it comes to actually trying to explain beauty, oftentimes it's easier just to point at something and say, look, that's beautiful. And then you see it and you begin to get an appreciation for what beauty actually is. God's glory then, I would say, if I could put a definition on it, is kind of like the beauty of all of his perfections taken together. There are many things about God. You know, he's sovereign, he's loving, he's good, he's righteous, he's just. And and all of these things in God come together in perfect harmony. And that is beautiful. 
But you could also talk about his power and how he created the Grand Canyon. You could talk about the largest mountain peaks in the world. You can go out and you can behold these incredible vistas with these towering mountains. You can look up into the night sky and behold the Milky Way. You leave town, you get out of town away from the, the pollution of the lights and on a clear, dark night, you look up and you can just see all the universe. In all of these things, we're seeing just a glimpse of God's glory, his beauty, as understood in all of the things that he's made and, and understood in the ways that he acts and how he conducts himself. Now, when we look at his glory, we need to be reminded of the fact that the reason he created us was to be image bearers. That's a fancy way of saying that we're supposed to be like a mirror that reflects his glory. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Don't flip there, just listen. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so... God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. The biblical story of creation reaches its climax on day six with the creation of man, male and female, created in the image of God. Four things need to be observed as we look at that. Man is created as the last of all God's created acts. And therefore, we understand that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Two, only man is said to be created in the image of God. Three, only now that man is on the scene in the image of God, does the writer of Genesis describe the work of creation as being very good. Sure, it was good, it was good, it was good. Man is created, and now Genesis says it is very good. And then fourth, man is given dominion and commanded to subdue the earth and to fulfill it. So what is man's purpose here in this creation? According to the text, creation exists for man. Our green grass, our snowy winter ski slopes. Our golf courses, our trees that we have to chop down and build fire with the firewood that we get from them, all of this was created for us, okay? But since God made man like himself, man's dominion over the world and his filling the world is to be understood as a display of God's image, an imaging forth. Of God. God's aim, therefore, was that man would so act that he would mirror forth God who has ultimate dominion. Man is then given the exalted status of image bearer, not so that he would become arrogant and autonomous and do things on his own, which is unfortunately what happened in the fall, but he is given dominion so that he would reflect the glory of his maker. He would reflect the glory of his maker whose image he bears. God's purpose in creation, therefore, was to fill the earth with his own glory 
This is made clear in Numbers chapter 14, where the Lord says, All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And he says it again in Isaiah 43 and verse 7, speaking about you and me, his people created in his image. He says, All those whom I created for my glory. God's ultimate goal, therefore, is to preserve and display his infinite and awesome greatness, his infinite worth, it is to preserve and display his glory. God has obviously many goals in what he does, but none of them is more ultimate than this. They are all, all of his other goals are subordinate to this goal. God's passion is to exalt the value of his glory, that all mankind would be able to see it and delight in it to worship him for it. That is his goal. Now, we come back to this word, propitiation, understanding that God's plan is to restore us to a place where we can reflect his glory. Jesus, dying on the cross, cannot simply be the covering over of our sin, because then we would be just a blank slate. There is far more that must be done on our behalf if we would be able to once again reflect and image God's glory to this creation. God must be entreated. His favor must be secured and he must be glorified. So whatever we're going to mean about this word propitiation, whatever definition we're going to give to it, if God is not exalted, then the fundamental problem of the fall is not addressed. Okay. So we step back and you say, what does this word mean then? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this Greek word halasmas has been used at multiple points throughout the Old Testament. And again, looking at it in context, we begin to get a picture of what this word means. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse 2, Now the people of Bethel had sent Sheriazar and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of of the Lord. Notice that. Entreat the favor of the Lord. That Greek word halasmos is used there and it is translated in English entreating the favor of the Lord. Again in Zechariah it says many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Again, Greek word halasmos. We also see it in the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. Malachi says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Notice that, the lack of glory, the despising of his name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? 
by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, isn't that evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, isn't that evil? Present that to your governor. Would he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Therefore, helasmas, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Again, in the Old Testament, we see this word is not simply about appeasing someone. It's about securing their divine, in God's case, their divine favor. When we're angry, we are filled with rage and we need to vent our anger. And in a sense, the cross absolutely is the venting of God's anger upon his son, the pouring out of his wrath in order to do justice. But this word propitiation, it is more. It is more than simply covering over our sins. And it speaks to more than simply God venting his anger. When God looks at the cross because of who Jesus is and because of the glory of what he is doing, God sees that And far more than just covering over sin, far more than just satisfying his wrath, God looks upon the cross and he is pleased. He is made happy. His favor has been entreated. Nothing could ever entreat the favor of God that did not magnify his glory. Nothing could ever satisfy God. Nothing could ever make him happy if it was not equal to his glory, his honor, and all that he is in his beautiful perfections. If the cross isn't all glorious, then God would not be righteous in allowing himself and his favor to be entreated by something that was slightly less than the perfection of his own glory. That's what this word propitiation is really driving at. And Jesus makes it explicitly clear the night before he is to be crucified. In John chapter 17, he prays this prayer. And he says, when, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He prays two things. He says, glorify me that I may glorify you. And it's all in the context of him going to the cross, which is to say that what Christ is doing on the cross is to magnify the glory of God. Say, okay, pastor, I get it. 
Propitiation then is about exalting and satisfying the glory of God. What difference does it really make? When you go to tell someone about Jesus, where do you start? Listen, Bob, you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven of your sins. Let me tell you about Jesus. Does the cross forgive us of our sins? It has to if we're ever to have the glory that God desires for us to have. But who's at the center of that story? The sinner. The story that God is telling in sending his son is that Jesus does not exchange the glory of God for anything else. He lives for that glory. And even in going to the cross, he is in that act glorifying God. Which means that the cross, whether it is ever to be believed by anyone, whether the cross ever succeeds in saving anyone, it is first and foremost an exaltation of the character, the beauty, and the glory of God. Friday night, I was having dinner with some friends. We're at this restaurant. This guy is waiting on our table, and I begin to strike up a conversation with him. He tells me that he's getting his degree in cybersecurity, which my brother is, uh, he works for the Navy in the Department of Homeland Security in the United States, and he does cyber warfare. And so I said, oh, that's fascinating. My brother does all kinds of really crazy, weird, probably illegal stuff for the United States government, and uh, you and I probably have something we can, we can talk about. And so we get to talking, and then I keep thinking to myself, how do I, how do I segue this into an invitation to church or telling him about Jesus. He's working. You know, I don't, you don't say to the waiter, stop waiting tables and sit down here at my table so I can, you know, give you the, the four spiritual laws or whatever and start working my way through my gospel presentation. But afterwards, I'm leaving. And uh, he comes up and he says, thanks for talking to me. He says, um, you know, people don't always interact with their waiters. I just want you to know I really appreciate you talking to me throughout the night as I was waiting on your table. I said, that's great. I was happy to do that. I want to tell you about the cross sometime. To which he then responded, oh, I, I you know, I, I'm not religious. I'm not spiritual. I, I, I don't care to know about, about these things. I said, do you like to travel? And I don't know where this comes from. This is just the inspiration of the Holy Spirit speaking in my heart. And of course, I was sitting on this sermon all week long. And he, he kind of looked at me. He was like, what do you mean? I'm like, do, do you need to ever see the Taj Mahal? And he was like, well, no. I mean, I was like, but would you like to maybe go see the Taj Mahal someday? And he was like, well, yeah, sure. I was like, you'd like to travel the world, I'm sure, as a young man. And like, you'd like to go see the Eiffel Tower in Paris, right, sometime. Maybe you want to go see the, uh, the ancient pyramids in Egypt. You'd like to see those things, wouldn't you? And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, would you consider yourself an Egyptian? And he saw where I was going with it. He's like, well, I mean, I was like, look, I'm not here to sell you anything. I don't need to sell you anything. You should hear about the cross, whether you ever choose to believe in Jesus or not, because it's glorious. There is something happening here. 
that is all captivating, that is all enrapturing because we are seeing the heart of God. We're seeing the display of who he is. It cuts through all the fog and all the confusion. It doesn't matter where we are at in history. It doesn't matter what the prevailing or predominant worldview is. It doesn't matter what the societal sin is that we're struggling with. The cross cuts through all of it. It stands forever as something beautiful. It is and will always be first and foremost about God before it is about us. And the good news here is that because it is a return of God's glory to him, a vindication of his righteousness in passing over sins and exercising divine forbearance, what God is saying is that in that moment when I did not instantly strike David down, though he deserved it, in that moment, I endured the blasphemy of those who would suggest I was less than righteous because I was about to display a far greater glory and a glory that would suffice as the perfect explanation for why I would be patient and pass over these sins in divine forbearance. Church, the cross is beautiful. And the definition we have for this word, propitiation, is that the cross is glorious. Jesus dying on the cross is glory because it is and it must be glory if it is ever to entreat the favor of the all-glorious one. Look to the beauty and the splendor of the cross. See it for what it is in itself. And then from that, understand that it is for you as well. It's for everyone. Jesus not only covers our sin, Jesus not only ransoms us from the captivity of sin, Jesus is our propitiation. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you so much for what you have done in sending your son Jesus to die for your own glory in showing your heart and your character and all that you are and all of your beauty and all of your perfection. You love sinners, but you are still holy and righteousness in your pursuit of justice. God, help us to see that the cross is beautiful in itself because of how it magnifies and exalts you And then from that, reassure our hearts that because you are committed to your glory and having satisfied that demand, you can be gracious and merciful to us sinners. Reassure our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.